We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Luke chapter number 5 in your Bible, please, and verse number 1. I'd like to bring your message today on the motive of Christian service the genuine, the real motive of Christian service. Now keep that in your mind, the subject in your mind, please, as I try to speak to you from these verses in Luke chapter number five. Most of us are concerned about Christian service. Our life's wrapped up in Christian ministry. We love the church, we love the program of the church. We love the Sunday school program, we love the mission program. We appreciate all that every part of Tabernacle are any other church for that matter does in getting the gospel out around the world. Christian service, Christian ministry is my very heart and my very life. And I feel that I speak of the sentiment of many of you when I make that statement as well as my own personal sentiment. Now, what is the motive behind it? Why is it and how is it that men give themselves uh, to the ministry or to the service of the Lord? Uh, what's the answer uh, about the missionary. How is it that the missionary is willing to do what he does? Now, I, I oftentimes refer to the missionary, but that's not to take from uh, any other Christian because every Christian has some kind of a ministry. So happens that some are called full-time to regions beyond, to foreign fields. Not all of us are, but all of us equally are responsible to Christian service and Christian ministry. Now, what's the answer of the missionary? Why is it that he does it? And how is it that he does it? What's the answer to you uh, that sit now in this congregation of people? Uh, tomorrow, you'll be out among other people that don't love the Lord as you love the Lord. You'll be working side by side with folk tomorrow who are not in God's house today and who doesn't love the Lord as you love the Lord. And they think you're a little bit strange because you go to church on Sunday instead of the lake and because you tithe your income instead of buying a boat. And they think you're rather strange uh, because you don't indulge in their cocktails and in their dancing and in their lewd talk and in their filthy communications. They think you're a little bit strange. Now, what's the answer? How is it that men come to the uh, philosophy and the convictions of life that you've arrived at? How is it that a man will give himself to the Savior in spite of the jeering and sometimes the scoffing and the gainsaying of a pleasure-mad generation in which we live? And the more people persecute me and you because of our convictions, the more determined we are by God's grace to stand by our convictions. I don't plan to change. I've had a little bit of a scoffing heaped upon me down through the years, not hardly enough to worthy of the mention. But I don't plan to change. I plan to go on as is. I plan to finish my life a fundamental Baptist preacher, believing exactly what I've always believed and preaching exactly what I've always preached and living as I've always tried to live. Don't plan to compromise one single whit. How is it that men come to that conviction? Not many people are, comparatively speaking. Not many people are, that, are of that persuasion. The simple thing in our day is to go along and uh, not to be different. That's the easy way, that's the easy route. It takes a lot of grace for a man to dare to be different. 
Takes a lot of courage for a man to go against the, uh, the, the crowds and live differently from the crowds. And by living differently from the crowds, you rebuke them. Marvel not, my brethren, if the, if the world hate you. Sometimes uh, you are hated not because you're guilty of a crime, but for righteousness sake. And that's not easy for a man to be persecuted for righteousness sake when he knows that by bending or by compromising just a bit that he can avoid that kind of persecution. And yet you refuse to compromise. You refuse to bend one single bit. You just stand like a mighty tree planted by the river. And you take and take and take. What's the answer to that kind of a Christian service? Why do men do that? In the matter of tithing, in the matter of giving. Uh, tabernacle couldn't be what it is uh, were it not for generous, uh, wholehearted uh, uh, givers, tithers, and others that make generous offerings to the Lord one way or another. There'd be no answer to the uh, work of uh, a minister of tabernacle otherwise. We couldn't carry our missionary load. Well, we couldn't carry the, uh, the load of the home or the, uh, the, uh, the ministry of the local church. Couldn't be done. The radio couldn't be done. Except somebody is willing to sacrificially and with regularity give and, and, and not deviate. Just, just stand faithfully, week by week, giving, investing in the gospel. How is it the men come to that persuasion? Tithing is a pretty, pretty big uh, item. The truth is, the government doesn't really believe you tithe. And the more you give, the bigger liar they think you are. And if you give so much, you've got to have foolproof evidence that you really gave it. Now, you can make a contribution, you don't have to prove that. But you can't tithe and not be able to prove it. And the reason you have to prove it is because the government don't believe anybody loves the Lord that much. Now, they allow you, they will allow you the tithe if you're really tired, then can prove you do. But they think you're rather strange because you do. And the man that fills out your income taxes down at the government office, he thinks you're rather strange for giving as much money as you do to the Lord. And some of you don't stop at 10. Why, some of you give 20%. And some give more than 20%. You sure better have evidence. The government wouldn't believe that. That anybody in the world could love the Lord enough to give 20% of his income to the Lord. But there's a lot of people that can do that and do that and, and shout for the privilege of it. What's the answer? I'm talking about Christian service. What's the real motive in Christian service? Now, there's something behind it. Now, there's some negative things that I, I could mention before I read my scripture that I think maybe right now would be a good time to mention those things. I remind you, first of all, uh, it's not slavery. I don't serve because I'm a slave. Uh, my ministry is not that type of ministry. My ministry is voluntary. My ministry is from devotion. My ministry is sincere and yours. My giving is not because I'm a slave, but my giving is because I sincerely desire to honor God with my tithing and to further the gospel cause around the world. So it's not slavery. And then again, it's not success. The motive in Christian service is not always success. Now, if I, if I served God only uh, as, re, uh, as, the, as the success comes in, and without success I fail to serve God or refuse to serve God, then many times I would not be found faithful, you see. But I, I'm going to serve God and minister to the best of my ability whether I'm successful or not. Now, it's good to be successful, but I'm going to serve the Lord whether I'm successful or not. I guess if Brother Noah 
had counted the noses on board his ship, when the rain began to come, he'd have just opened the door and walked out and died to the rest of them. Because uh, numerically speaking, Moses was not, rather, uh, not, not greatly successful. He only saved eight people out of all that generation, and the great majority of them died in the flood, as you well know. No, I don't serve God because I'm successful. Now, I've been able to win a few people to the Lord, and I'm glad for everyone that I've been able to win. I saw a man come in the door a while ago, and when he walked in the door, I remember baptizing him, and in my soul, beneath my breath, I said, thank you, Lord, for that brother. Thank you, Lord, for that man. Thank you, Lord, for that man. I said that right there a moment ago. And I, I, I was saying that to say, Lord, give me some others. I'd like to baptize some others. Uh, nothing thrills me more than to be able to do that. I want a few people to the Lord in my, in my lifetime. But I'm going to serve God whether I win few or many. Or any, in fact. I'm going to minister whether I have any success at all. So success does not regulate my ministry. It'll encourage me, and I can rejoice over it, and give God the praise for it, but I'm going to serve the Lord whether successful or not. Now, some of you people in this building, uh, you tried your best to win somebody to God, and it seems like it's just an impossible job, and you haven't been able to accomplish that job, and you've gotten discouraged because you haven't been successful. And the old devil has threatened you and tempted you to give it up and just stop trying because you haven't been successful. But I'd like to remind you that success is not a good motive in Christian service. I heard a man say one time, he said, when I preach, if somebody doesn't walk the aisle and get saved, I'm dead. Now, I quoted verbatim. He meant by that, uh, if somebody doesn't get saved every time I preach, I, I'm just no good to anybody. I'm no good to my wife. I'm no good to my family. I'm no good to myself. I'm no good to, my, uh, to the other people on the church staff. I'm just dead. I quoted verbatim. That's what he said. And I think that's what he meant. He said, I've got to have somebody saved. I'm not fit for anything. I'm just no good. If I can't have somebody saved, I'm just no good. Well, I didn't make any answer to that man when I heard him make that statement. In fact, uh, he, didn't, he didn't expect an answer out of me. But in my soul, I said, now, Lord, I don't want that. I'm going to preach whether people want the aisles or not. And I'm going to keep on knocking on doors whether I win everybody I witness to to God or not. I'm going to keep on doing right on the job and in the office and the store whether anybody takes sides with me or not. I'm going to keep on living for God in the classroom whether anybody else lives for Jesus or not. You see what I'm talking about? Success is a wonderful thing. But that's not the reason we serve the Lord. That's not a good motive in Christian service. William Carey went to India and preached the word of God not weeks but months, not months but years before he had his first convert. Had William Carey measured his ministry according to the standard of the man that I quoted a moment ago, he would have left India in about two or three months and gone back to England and given it, give it up. But instead of that, he stayed with it and his name gone, has gone down in the annals of history as one of the great missionaries of all the church age, because he stayed with it. He was not greatly successful, but he stayed with it, you see. Now, success is good, but we're going to stay with the work regardless of the success. What is a good motive in Christian service? Uh, last Sunday, we had our teachers meeting here at Tabernacle, and we met upstairs in Brother Brown's department, and uh, Mrs. Turner, Mrs. James Turner, teaches in that department, and she stood up, 
and gave a testimony last Sunday night, and I was there, Brother Aiken was there, and the other workers were there, and in that testimony she said, I have been teaching in this department 22 years. She meant by that ever since the church has been here. She and Brother James are charter members of our church, along with uh, some of the other Turners. And I appreciate this family, wonderful family of people. She said, I have been teaching in this department 22 years. And that's the junior department, by the way. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder how many times Mrs. James Turner has become discouraged. I suspect many, don't you guess? 22 years, and in those years, no doubt, she's had some children that were hard to handle. She had some other children, no doubt, uh, that might have talked uh, all the time. And then she might have had some other children that were not interested in the Bible and the lesson. No doubt she had some good children too. Thank God for that. But I'm sure that Mrs. Turner has had many things in those 23 years uh, that was not successful. But she stayed right at it. Right at it. Right at it. 22 years. Amen. The motive in Christian service is not necessarily success. Then I'm reminded too that it's not the praise of men. I'm going to serve the Lord whether men applaud me or not. Now I, I welcome a word of commendation. And I think a word of commendation uh, could be appreciated by anybody. I noticed yesterday Brother Harrelson had his uh, dogs at the uh, picnic and those dogs go through a routine and he has them really trained. I mean they're smart. They know exactly what to do at the word of Brother Harrelson or at the signal that he knows how to give to those animals. But I noticed every time they did a good job, he'd reach down and pat them on the head or rub their fur. And that was a way of saying, I appreciate you. That's the way Brother Harrelson had to say that uh, to his animals. They couldn't understand words. But they understood the stroke of their master's hand. They understood the pat on the head. And Brother Harrelson gave it. Every time they did a good job, he gave that commendation. Now, we, anybody appreciates that. When a man uh, excels, when a man does a good job, when a woman is loyal and faithful, when a singer blesses and lifts people, uh, people appreciate a word of commendation. And I think when a word of commendation is due, it ought to be given. It's not flattery. Commendation is one thing. Flattery is wrong and wicked. Flattery is selfishness in reverse. And, and nobody is concerned about flattery. We, uh, we, we're not, we, we don't flatter people. I, I despise to get around a man uh, given to flattery. The Bible condemns it. We're not to do that. Uh, flattery is insincerity. Uh, you give flattery for personal gain. Flattery is not commendation. Flattery is hypocritical. And we're not to be given to flattery. But a word of commendation, that's different. That's always uh, in order. It's always good to give commendation where commendation is due. And so it is. Uh, all, all of us appreciate the praise of men in that degree. But I'm going to serve the Lord whether men applaud me or not. Whether men recognize me or not, I'm going to keep on serving the Lord, you see. I, uh, the motive in my, uh, my ministry is not the applause of men. I have never been a nominated the man of the year in Greenville County. And I've lived here a good number of years. I have never received that applause. And to tell you the truth, I'm not going to hold my breath till I do. 
No. Now, anybody would appreciate that kind of a commendation. But I'm going to serve the Lord whether I'm ever nominated the man of the year in Greenville County or not. That's beside the point, you see. I don't serve God to have men applaud me, no. Or to commend me, no. Or to flatter me, no. Nor do you. Then again, reason is not a motive in Christian service. We sometimes serve the Lord and go out into the ministry to honor God. And we do, as far as the world is concerned, some unreasonable things. We make some unreasonable choices. Now, my, my motive in serving God is not on a human line at a human level. Uh, you don't reason out why some people do some things. You can't reason, you can't reason out the tithe. With the government taking 20% of your income in the way of taxes and threatening to take another 10%, and for you on top of that, to voluntarily and shout while you do give another 10% to the church, that's not reasonable. That's not logical. And nobody's going to do that unless he's got a challenge and a motive from God to do it. You see, uh, you don't serve God from reasonable standpoints. You don't sit down and reason out a ministry or reason out a life on the mission field. You don't do that. You serve God for other motives than reason. Now let's look at our scripture for a moment. In verse number one in, in Luke 5, and it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, the Lord Jesus. Why? To hear what? The word of God. I'm startled when I read that. And I can't read that without stopping to make a word of comment. Hear the people pressing upon the Savior not to see him open blinded eyes. He did that. Not to see him cleanse the lepers. He did that. Not to see him feed 5,000 people. He did that. Not to see him resurrect the dead. He did that. But according to this text, this multitude pressed upon him to hear the word of God. I like that. And that's good. That's, re that's genuine. That's real. To hear the word of God. Now I want to say to you in passing, that the word of God still has an attraction to more people than you imagine. The devil has the idea these days that we've got, uh, we've just got to conform to the standards of the world. I watched the telecast this morning and the program that came on before me, I know nothing about it. But they had a woman singing two worldly songs. I mean, no religion connected with it at all. You might have heard it. No, no, no gospel in it in the least that I could discern. Two worldly songs sang on a gospel so-called program. That's crazy. Why in the world of men that call themselves clergymen compromise to that degree? I, I can't figure out how men would allow that to go on on a so-called gospel program. But they have the idea that the world won't hear Amazing Grace. The world won't listen to a song like Brother Don sang a moment ago. And in a degree, they're right. The world doesn't appreciate that kind of singing like you and I do. But I'd like for you to know that I'm convinced that there are more people that love old-fashioned singing and old-fashioned preaching than you've ever been aware of. The gospel has not lost its attraction. Now, in our day, we have to substitute a lot of things, so says the world, 
The word is not attractive anymore. Nobody will come to hear the gospel preached anymore. And so a preacher has to resort to a lot of other things to have somebody to preach to. I reject that, uh, that uh, uh, idea. I don't believe it's true. It's certainly not true at Tabernacle. I don't believe it's necessarily true anywhere else. I'm convinced that there are folk who yet desire to hear the word of God like this multitude in verse 1, Luke chapter number 5. They pressed upon the Lord to hear the word of God. Now, Tabernacle, that's what we're going to have. As long as I'm pastor of this church, we're not going to have somebody stand in this pulpit and sing some worldly love song. You can rest assured of that. Johnny Cash will never be in this pulpit. Don't worry about that. No, sir. No. And uh, we're going to have some preaching done at Tabernacle. Not that I'm the preacher that I'd love to be. I would that I could preach uh, uh, in a more attractive fashion than I've ever been able to realize. But, but preaching is what Tabernacle must stand by and champion. And by the grace of God, that's what we're going to do. And there's still people that want to hear it. Last Sunday night, this building was completely filled. Upstairs, downstairs, in the choir. And I guess the nurseries as well. If we'd have had 25 more people come, the ushers would have been compelled to bring cheers out last Sunday night. Now, I know that's a little larger than ordinarily, but it's an ordinary service. The pastor was preaching. And Brother Aiken was directing the music, just on their service. And the building filled. Now that's an indication to me that the Word of God still has a drawing power. I don't think we have to resort to the world. And I think it would be compromise on our part and deathly to our church to resort to the world. To try to bring a few people in. Oh, but wait a minute, preacher. If you'll bring the world, you get Johnny Cash, you have a lot of people in Greenville come. Well, now those folk can just stay away. Now, I'd love to reach those people who wouldn't. I'd love to win them to the Lord who wouldn't. I'd love to baptize them who wouldn't. But if I've got to get Johnny Cash to get them in, brother, they can stay out. If the Holy Ghost can't get them in and the preaching of God's word doesn't get them converted, then we can't get them converted, you see. Yes. Glory. Amen, brother. Just help yourself. Praise God. Glory. Amen. Praise the Lord. They pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God. Now you remember that. As he stood by the lake of Galilee. Genesaret is the lake of Galilee. Now, in the next verse, Jesus saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were going out of them. They'd finished for the day, and they were on the shores washing their nets. And the Lord saw those two empty ships. And a few feet away, they saw Peter, James, and John, and Zebedee washing their nets, mending their nets, getting everything ready for another day of fishing on tomorrow. Now, I guess that's a quite common scene in that day, and even our day. I was amazed. Every time I've been to Israel, we visited the Sea of Galilee, that's a focal point in the land of, of the Bible. But they fish on Galilee today just like they did when the Lord lived, except their boats are powered by motors now. But all out over the lake, you can see a dozen or so little fishing vessels. 
And those men are fishing for fish now. And some of the best fish I've ever eaten is in Galilee. The water is blue and clear and, and, uh, and fresh. And the fish are wonderful. You can see the fish swimming around the shore. Hundreds, thousands, thousands of them. It's down the shore you can see the fish in Galilee. And uh, they're still fishing in Galilee as they did then. But Peter, James, and John, and Zebedee had been fishing all day. And now the day's work is over. And they had gotten out of their boats, pulled their boats to the coast and to the shore, gotten out and dragged their nets across on the uh, sand, and they were fixing their nets and washing the nets and getting them ready for the next day. Now, while they were doing that, Jesus entered into one of those ships that belonged to Simon Peter. And he said to him, he prayed him, that he would thrust out a little from the land. And Peter said, okay. And he pushed the boy out into the water and thrust it out a few yards, five yards, 10 yards, on the water, and Jesus sat down in that ship and taught the people on the shore. A great crowd pressed around him to hear the word of God. So he used the ship as a pulpit, and he used the waters as a sounding board, and he sat there on the ship and spoke so the crowds could hear him there on the shores. I'd love to know what he preached about that day. The Bible doesn't record it. Far as I know, the Bible makes no record of it. But it must have been a great sermon. Maybe something like the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe part of the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, that's what happened. Now when he finished speaking, verse number four, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep. First he said, thrust out a little. I've got a work to do. And when he finished his work, giving his message, he said, now launch out into the deep. In other words, pull your, pull your anchor in now and let's get out here 100 yards away from shore where the water is deep. Launch out into the deep. And when we get out there, Simon, let down your nets for a draught of fish. We're going to catch fish. Now imagine Simon was a little bit uh, befuddled at that point. And he might have thought, he might have said so. He was, uh, he was easy to speak, sometimes very free uh, with his word. But I imagine Simon might have said, now, Lord, you tend to this preaching business. We'll take care of the fishing business. And actually, they were professional fishermen, you know. And they knew how to fish, no doubt in my mind about that. Zebedee taught his sons, John, James and John. And Peter learned a lot about fishing. And they were professionals at the job. And they had been fishing all day long and night. And he caught nothing. And I imagine Simon was a little bit... Uh, befuddled that the Lord would say, let your nets down. Why? He said, Lord, we just pulled them in. We just finished washing them. We just finished mending those nets for the fishing of tomorrow. And now you're saying, let your nets down again. Why, it's no use. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. And your request is unreasonable. Now, whether he said those things to the Lord or not, all those things or not, I don't know. But here's what he did say. Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. We know how to fish. We knew, know where to fish. We know what to catch. We know what to do with them when we get them. And we toiled all night long and caught nothing. And now you're saying, thrust out, launch out into the deep and let our nets down that we just finished washing, just finished mending. And we'll have to go through all this process all over again. And your request is unreasonable. And uh, we'd just rather not do that. We've toiled all night long and taken nothing. Well, from a human standpoint, that sounds logical. Some of you brethren in this church, you know, 
you know fishing well. You've done a lot of it, some of it, some of you, too much of it, to tell you the truth. Y'all do more praying and more visiting and less fishing. I told somebody the other day, the next day you have off, why don't you give it to the Lord? Instead of going to the lake, just give it to the Lord and come out here. We'll put two dozen names in your hands and you can make two dozen calls that day instead of fish. Why don't you try that? So, me? That's right, you. Why not? Don't you think the Lord's worth giving a day to every once in a while? Yeah. But you fish and you're masters at it. Now, suppose next time you go fishing. And uh, suppose I walked up on the shore and, and proceeded to tell you how to fish. Why, well, you'd, you'd think a little strange. I don't fish. I haven't been fishing that many times in my life. And I know nothing about fishing. I couldn't even bait a hook. And if I got a fish on my hook, you'd have to get him off. And if I caught one, I couldn't clean him. All I can do is eat him if somebody else does the work. But anyway, you'd say, preacher, you're going back to the church and take care of your work. You're a preacher. We know how to fish. You don't fish. You make fun of us because we do. And you challenge me to not fish and visit. You go and tend to your business. We're going to fish. And you'd have every right in the world, humanly speaking, to have that attitude if I were to tell you how to fish. Now, no doubt Simon Peter had those thoughts in his mind. Master, we've toiled all night long. We're worn out. We haven't had a wink of sleep all night. And more than that, we've caught nothing. And now we've got our nets all fixed up. We can go home and sleep a while and then come back and fish tonight. And now you tell us to wet our nets again and go through this process all over again. It's not reasonable that we do that. Now, whether he said more than that or not, I don't know, but but he said that. And then he said, nevertheless, thank God for that nevertheless, at thy word. Now there's my text. Nevertheless, at thy word. Now I want you to underscore that in your Bible. At thy word. Reason says it's no use. Experience says it's fruitless. Results says there are none. Nevertheless, at thy word, from, a, from an experienced standpoint, and from the voice of experienced fishermen, it was the most foolish thing the Lord could have requested. All night long, we've toiled all night long, we've tried to catch fish, and we haven't caught the first one. And now we're worn out, and a new day has done, we need some sleep. And now you're saying, wet your nets again, dirty your nets again, launch out into the deep, let down your nets when there are no fish. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Now, my soul, I want you to know that this is the real and the only genuine motive for Christian service I know about. At thy word word. That's it. That's the key. And that's the only key. Suppose somebody said, well, I tell you, the preacher at Tabernacle done very well, been there 22 years and built a great church. I think I'll go on the other side of the city and do the same thing. You think he could do that? No, he couldn't. The only way he can do that is at the word of God. Only when God allows it. At thy word. Now, I, I don't pass the Tabernacle Baptist Church because it's popular, because it's easy. I'm, I'm passionate of this church because God, in his word, in his providence, 
allowed me to do that for these 22 years. At thy word, we'll do what otherwise could never be done. At thy word, we'll go otherwise where we could never go any other way. At thy word, we'll perform a ministry that, humanly speaking, could never be performed any other way. At thy word, I will let down the nets. Now, there's your motive. Now, what happened? When they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets began to break. And Peter and Jesus beckoned unto their partners that they should come with the other ship, that they should come and help them immediately. And they came and filled both ships with fish so that they began to sink. And when Peter got his breath and got his eyes open enough to see what was taking place, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord, how faithless I am to doubt your word. How foolish I am to suggest you didn't know what you was talking about. How natural, how sinful I am not to obey you immediately without questioning your word one single bit. O wretched man, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. When Simon saw, for he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes that they had taken. So also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners of Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, I wanted to teach you a lesson. For from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their nets to the land, look what they did. They forsook their boats. They did not clean their nets. They didn't mend their nets. They gave the fish away and said, follow me. I'm going all the way with you, Jesus. Follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Now, the heart of my message is in verse number five. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will let the nets down at your word. Now, the motive in Christian service can be summed up in one word, obedience, obedience, obedience. Now I do what sometimes people think is foolish because I want to obey the Savior. I go where sometimes folks think I'm foolish to go because I want to obey the Savior. I stand sometimes when it's difficult to stand because I want to obey the Savior. I refuse to compromise the scriptures are Christian conduct because I seek to obey the Savior at his word. Now there is the, the motive of Christian uh, service. Now I want you to note about this matter at thy word, the matter of obedience. May I consider with you the faith of witnessing to illustrate my point. The faith of witnessing. We're all witnesses. Every one of you are witnesses. Some are better witnesses than others. Some are more regular, more fervent in witnessing than others. But all of us are witnesses. The fact that you've been baptized as a witness of your faith and your grace. And we're all witnesses to some degree. Now all the witnessing you've ever done is a matter of faith. You witness because of obedience. 
Oh, but say I witness because of the results. No, you don't. You witness because Jesus said to witness. We're to give our testimony. We're to give our witness. And we witness by faith. The faith of witnessing. And there you have the key at thy word. I witness not that I have a lot of people converted as a result of it. No, nor because people pat me on the back because of it. Not at all. But I witness because my Savior said that I'm to be witnesses unto him in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And we give our witness by faith, the faith of witnessing. The same thing is so with the faith of teaching. Mrs. Turner, who I used as an illustration a moment ago, these 22 years, all these years, the faith of teaching, sowing the seed, sowing the seed, and having the seed come up, obedience, at thy word, at thy word. I've used this illustration here before, and I want to use it again today. It fits exactly what I'm trying to say. We buried Mrs. John Baker, uh, Betty's mother. Betty's here this morning. A number of years ago, we buried Mrs. Baker up here at Graceland Cemetery. And uh, after the funeral here in our church, she also, by the way, taught in one of the primary departments of our Sunday school for long years and taught in other primary departments before they ever came to Tabernacle, before our church was born. But after the funeral, I noticed a police officer in uniform with his badge, with his blue uniform, with his gun at his side. And I wondered who he was and why he was there. And after we had the committal at the graveside and the family had already gotten into the automobile and started back to their homes, the mortician had finished. The policeman walked up to me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Preacher, you've buried a good woman today. I said, that's right, sir. I didn't know the policeman. I couldn't call his name now to save my life. But one of our local policemen, I said, that's right, sir. We sure have. And then he said, when I was a little boy, this woman whom you buried today taught me in Sunday school. And she, he said, she instilled in my soul in that primary boys Sunday school class principles of godliness and conduct and faith that I've never gotten away from. And he said that as he brushed the tears out of his eyes. And I thought to myself, how wonderful. Mrs. Baker didn't necessarily know all that she was doing as she ministered and taught those boys and girls uh, in that primary department way back on a number of years ago. But here's a man, a, a full-grown man, 40 years old, giving testimony to the pastor as to what she had done by faith, unaware, but by faith, she had done that as a lad. Now that's the faith of teaching. The same thing is so with the faith of preaching. When I go to the radio mic, I have no way of seeing the person that may be by the radio listening to me. I don't know who that person may be. I don't know where my voice may go, into home, an automobile, a truck, uh, a rest home, a hospital. I have no way of knowing. I have no idea who may be listening. I preach. I preach. And I do so by faith. I received a letter one day from a Jewish man. And he wrote to me from over North Carolina. And I received the letter, the letter the first of the week. And he said, he said, Sunday, last Sunday, I was in Greenville. In fact, passing through Greenville, a traveling man, a salesman, I, I judged. And he said, I saw your church on the side of the road. And I pulled into the parking lot and parked and went in. And I heard you preach. And he said, you're almost persuaded me about Jesus. And I thought to myself, I had no idea 
that that Jewish man was in my congregation. I had no idea that God was dealing with him or God was speaking to him. I had no idea who was listening. I have no idea right now. I can see the most of you, 95% of you I know personally and call by your first name. But there's a 5% in this congregation that I don't know. And I don't know your need. And there are hundreds by the radio now that I've never seen, I've never known. I preach by faith. Obedience. At thy word we preach. Well, I preach, I'm, I'm going to see the result. I'm going to see the result. You show me the result, then I'll preach. You show me the results, and then I'll tithe. No, my friend, we don't serve like that. We serve by faith. At thy word I'll preach. At thy word I'll preach, you see. I preach by faith. And all of our ministry is at that particular point. Not for the applause of men. Not that we can see the results with our visible eyes. But at the command of our Savior. Speak, thy servant heareth. I'll go where you want me to go, Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. At thy word, I'll go. Now that's the, that's the testimony of every missionary on foreign fields today. They're there at the word of the Savior. They're there by faith in the Savior. When we was down in Nassau back in April, I looked into the face of several of the missionaries whom we support. The one that was in charge of the, uh, of the conference there that I was preaching in, uh, we support. And I looked into his face, I looked into his wife's face and I thought to myself, how wonderful it is that you were willing to give up your pastorate in the States and give up your residence in America and come down into the Bahama Islands and minister to these people that don't have uh, the things they need to have in the way of material things and spiritual things. And uh, to serve sometimes unrecognized, unrewarded, and unapplauded. How wonderful that is. And I marvel at their grace to serve God by faith in that far away place in the Bahamas. They do it by faith. They're not getting rich, you believe me. Nor are they becoming popular, you believe me. And nor are they winning all the natives in the Bahamas either. They have some, as we have some. But they're not winning all the natives, you believe me. And yet they're serving, they're ministering, they're preaching. At thy word. Now there's the key. There's the motive in Christian service. Now you say, well, I've got to have more than that. You're a poor servant. And if I was you, I'd be ashamed of myself. We need no more than the word of our Savior. He said, go. We must go. He said, witness. We must witness. He says, give. I must give. You see? He says, stand. I must stand at thy word. And if I know my soul, I'm willing to minister upon the word of God. Not more than that, upon the word of God. By faith, I'm willing to go forth. Are you? Peter had a real battle, I imagine. I imagine he said, Lord, that's the most foolish thing. There are no fish out here now. We haven't caught a minute, not all night long. We've caught nothing. And now you say, let the nets down. But oh, how faith wrought victory on that night. And old Peter began to pull those nets in. And so many fish until the, the cords broke. And the nets began, uh, fish began to escape. 
fill up one boat about to sink it, fill up another boat about to sink it. They really got a, a draw to fish that night. But when they got the whole outfit to the shore, they left the boats, their nets, and gave the fish away and followed Jesus. Isn't that great? That's the thing. Amen. And Peter went fishing no more. I don't find in the record that he ever bought himself another boat. He's out of the fishing business as of that night. James and John's through now. They're through with the fishing that night. And from that moment on, they became fishers of men. And that's what we are as witnesses for the Savior. May we stand with our heads bowed, every head bowed, every eye closed. As we stand, everybody bows head, bowed heads, closed eyes. Our Father, I come to pray that the words of my text may burn themselves into my heart and into the hearts of these that heard me preach today. Nevertheless, at thy word, grant, O oh God, that shall be the motive in our Christian service. We don't preach to have people applaud us. We don't sing to have people commend us. We don't tithe to have people flatter us, no. But we preach and sing and serve and teach and shout and visit and witness at the word of the Savior. We do these things because it pleases God that we occupy ourselves thus. And I pray that until the last breath has been breathed in and out of our bodies, we shall be faithful servants at the word of the Savior. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.